I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. And as we are closing out this series, we'll have one more sermon next Sunday morning that will we'll finish up the chapter. I just wanted to make, um, I just wanted to give a, a shout out to one resource. If you're ever in the book of Daniel uh, and you want one small book, I would suggest this one, Hope in the Midst of a Hostile World. I won't be studying Daniel for a while, so you could even borrow it from my bookshelf. Um, there are several charts that I've used in here that I find helpful. There, there are, I think of all the commentaries of Daniel, sometimes they are just spot on and light up a passage, and sometimes they just kind of whiff and say, we're not going to really cover that spot. And so I've, I've used several commentaries, but this one overall has been a, a great way to uh, kind of get into the, the book of Daniel. <clears throat> what I'm going to do is we're going to, we're going to go on an adventure tonight, and we'll, we'll see what the Lord does with this. Uh, we do believe in preaching through passages, and, and we're going to try to make it through chapter 11, and we'll see what happens. I'm going to read you um, the first nine verses as an introduction and a reason why we are not going to read it straight through, but we're going to work at it. But I will read it and pray, and then we will get into the sermon. This is the angel now explaining to Daniel um, the, the message of, of the vision that, was, that he received when he saw those uh, incredible angels in chapter 10. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the kings of the south shall become strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Please pray with me. Father, we read this passage of scripture and right away realize that it is for us, but it wasn't necessarily written to us. We need to go back and, and find some of the history and background and as we do, Lord, I pray that you would impress us that you are not only Lord of creation and salvation, but you are also the sovereign God of history who is in control of every single thing. And so as we go back and we study your history, which you have revealed to your servant Daniel, 
Would you make us confident that you have us too right where you want us? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've just started in New Year's. And when you hear the word future, what comes to mind? Adventure? Scary? Unknown? Uncertain? What will 2020 bring? You may think you know it may be a nor- another normal year, or for the Barshingers it will be a very different year. Um, it may be very different than you think it will be. I will tell you, last week at this time, I was thinking this week would be very different than it was for us and our family. You don't know. History, or the future, is uncertain. But God's word to Daniel in chapter 11 is actually, in his providence, from his point of view, the future is certain. That God has everything planned and he is in control. In, verse, in chapter 10, you have the angels that come and, and they reveal to Daniel that the, the kingdoms that are, are fighting and oppressing his people are actually controlled by spiritual powers and that there are even greater spiritual powers that, that God has sent his angels are with the people. And, and then he starts this chapter 11. It is a who's who of local geopolitical overlords, local kings and for the Holy Land of Daniel, starting with Darius, the Persian, and moving to the biggest villain in Israel's history, who is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And a big question for us as we're reading scripture and as we go through this is why? Why this, this kind of vague list of, of names and, and, and battles and conflicts? It's, it's bewildering. And in fact, if you just read this without any context, you quick, I quickly get lost. You can't pin things down. What's just happening here? Well, God has already revealed that he's won in chapter 7. He will defeat the beasts of the history. The Son of Man is coming. Um, in chapter 9, he talks about the Messiah who will come to take Israel out of their even greater exile of sin. And now God says, even though there is a whole bunch of conflict, in the meantime, though the, the near future is going to be terrible, I am in control and I will be with my people. The future is certain. You see something about God here. In, in, in their hardest times of trial, he tells them, that he is with them and gives them their greatest certainty. In fact, you, can, you, you will see that these are very deliberately talking about kings and battles. And it's, it's not so specific that beforehand you could say, oh, well, I know that in the 2000s I should go buy dot-com stock. Right? It's not so specific that you could call battles beforehand. But looking back, you could say, yeah, God has planned everything exactly as he has said. And so what I want us to do is just to go through this history and look at it. And we're going to break it up into two sections. The first 35 verses, 1 through 35, and then the last 10 verses. And before we do that, I'm just going to briefly dip into a charge that was leveled at this passage a long time ago by a Greek philosopher called Parfury. Third century Greek pagan philosopher read the book of Daniel and said, that can't happen. No human can prophesy that way. Clearly, Daniel made it up after the fact. And by the way, he only made it up to verse 35 because after that, he tried his hand at prophecy and he got it wrong because it didn't happen. Third century 
A.D., 200s. That was a charge against Daniel. You may have heard of the churchman Jerome. He wrote the definitive commentary on, on Daniel. Jerome also translated the Vulgate. He lived in the, in the 300s. And he wrote the definitive commentary on Daniel for the next thousand years. And in fact, only through him that we know of Parfury skepticism. Well, um, I wouldn't even say anything about that. But what Parfury said is almost exactly what modern scholars have said post-Enlightenment. Can't be true. It's just too good. So what do we say to that? Well, we could just take scripture at face value and say, this is what God says. This is, this is true, and, and we can do that. Um, we should do that. Another argument is, you know, you, you just can't comfort people with fabricated prophecy. right? If this is going to be a comfort to people who are in distress, it has to be true. And if Daniel, the author of Daniel, was making it up after the fact, the people would know. And it just wouldn't be a comfort. So let's go, and we're going to dig into... This prophecy, Paul, do you have the, the chart? We're going we're gonna to look at a chart. And what you see here is you see the verses and then you see a, a person and then you see an arrow. Those arrows are going to kind of tell you what direction things are going. So here, first two verses of Xerxes one. He's the fourth Persian king that Daniel talks about. There are more after Xerxes, but he was the most powerful after that. Persia's in decline. And so he's the fourth king that attacks Greece in 480 BC. And so that's what you see the first two verses talking about. I'm not going to read them again because we've already read them. So we can go to the next chart. And then, so verses three and four, it talks about a mighty king shall arise. But as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to the four winds. And you might have even been thinking, well, that's got to be Alexander the Great, right? Alexander sweeps back east conquers all of Persia, goes into India, sweeps down, scoops up Egypt, but he dies, and both of his sons, Hercules and Alexander, are murdered, and his four generals carve up his empire. And after that, Daniel is no longer interested in the Greek empire in general, but goes to the specific two generals that are going to control Palestine, where Judea is. And so it's going to talk about the king of the north in Syria will be the Seleucid kings and then the king of the south, which are the Ptolemy, Ptolemaic kings. And these two would play political and military tug of war with Judea as the rope. And so as we look at this going back and forth, I want you to, there's a whole bunch of list of names and battles, but just think about the people of Israel as armies tramp from Syria through them down to Egypt and then from Egypt up through them to Syria. Sometimes battles being there, sometimes battles being waged elsewhere. So at first, we can do the next slide. Um, so at first, Ptolemy won. He was down in Egypt. He comes up and he annexes Palestine. At that point, the Seleucids had control of it. And that really starts the conflict. These two empires warring back and forth. They would claim it both from this point on. Next, there was an attempt to soothe things over. Ptolemy II from Egypt gives his daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II. Now, this is going to start to sound a little bit like a soap opera, but Antiochus II was already married, but he decided to divorce his first wife to be able to receive Berenice 
in other words, in a, in a way to be able to cement the political alliance. Well, for whatever reason, Antiochus II decided to reconcile with his first wife, who promptly had him, Berenice, and their son poisoned. So, if you send a daughter up to cement the marriage, the alliance, and she gets poisoned, that's not going to help for peace, right? So, so in, in that case, Ptolemy III, who happened to be Berenice's brother, he comes up and he attacks Seleucid II in about 240 BC. And he is able to gain control of Palestine. You can go to the next slide. However, the same king, Seleucus II, he gathers an army and he's able to come down. And he's not able to attack Egypt, but he's able to regain Palestine. So now we're going to start reading again at chapter 11, verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortresses. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come out with a great army and with abundant supplies. And so now the king of the north is this Antiochus III, who is known as the great for what he will do. And Ptolemy IV is the one it was talking about from the king of the south. He will come up and have initially some success against Antiochus III. He will beat him back. So there's this back and forth and back and forth. Uh, Antiochus goes around, solidifies his empire, and then he comes down and finally decisively retakes Palestine in 2000 or in 205 BC. So then we'll read um, verses 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And he shall set his faith to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of woman to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastland and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found." So here we see a couple things happening. Again, very, very detailed in history. So Antiochus, this is, this is the right spot. Yes, Antiochus III, he retakes Palestine. And then he starts to push eastward into Greece. At the same time, 
Ptolemy IV, who had been fighting against him and had initially had success, he dies. And there's this political vacuum. In fact, there's some of the local Egyptians who didn't like the Greeks were starting to weaken the Ptolemaic Empire. And so Antiochus says, I don't really need to take them out. I'm just going to send my daughter down, Cleopatra. You may have heard that name. I'm going to send Cleopatra down and she'll kind of be a courtroom spy. Except uh, she kind of sided with her husband. And so things went on in the kind of the family feud. And so then, then he goes to Greece and Antiochus III is soundly defeated by the Romans. And this is very important because now both empires are overshadowed by Rome and the Seleucid Empire, the king of the north, is always going to be looking for tribute to be able to get Rome off their back. Look at verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger or in battle. I don't have a slide for this one. This is just a, a ruler, Seleucid the fourth. He came after Antiochus the third, but was very unpopular because the majority of his reign was pressing the people, including Judea, for taxes. And so he died mysteriously, probably assassinated, just as his younger brother, who was a hostage from Rome, was returning, interestingly enough. And that brings us to Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That should be the next slide. I'm just going to abbreviate him as AE4. In his place, verse 21, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flattery. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him, even the prince of the covenant. It's unclear who the prince of the covenant was, but it was probably the high, high priest, Anaisus at that time. And he brought in a pro-Syrian uh, priest, Jason, and anointed him as high priest and then had the other one killed. You can think about how devastating that would be to Jews of this time. Well, we continue on in verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall work his will and return to his own land. Antiochus IV launches what seems to be a preemptive attack against Ptolemy VI in 169, he defeats the Egyptian army, but he's not able to go into Egypt. And then he will come back once more and he's confronted by the Romans and sent back. Here, see if you can hear who the Romans are in verses 29 to 35. At this time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid and withdraw, 
and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits the appointed time. And what happens here is that fateful time as Antiochus comes back again this time to Egypt with an army large enough to conquer it. But there is that famous story of the Roman counselor who meets him and says, you must withdraw now. And he says, give me some time to think about it. And he, he takes the sword and he draws the circle around him in the sand and says, you do not leave until you give an answer. And he already knew how his father was defeated soundly by Rome. He knew he could not oppose Rome. And so he goes back. And history at this point is, it's a little hard to know exactly what happens. But, but he comes back and he loots the temple. He forbades daily sacrifices. He places a, a meteor probably to, they believe, was some kind of uh, idol to Zeus or Baal. And that is what's worshipped in the temple. At the same time, one of the times that he is away in Egypt, Jason at this point had been ousted again by someone who wasn't even of priestly blood. He was just a complete pretender. He thought Antiochus was dead, and so he encouraged the rebellion. And when Antiochus comes back, he turns the city into a bloodbath and slaughter. And so this is one of these times, you can, you can make it go black for now, Paul. One of the times that is indelibly marked of, of suffering and destruction of, of Antiochus purposefully trying to stamp out godly living in Judaism. So what do we do then with this next part? As we're going to read this, there's actually a gap here. I believe that this is now jumping from Antiochus to the times of the end. See if you can, if you can catch this. We'll read 36 to the end of the chapter. So we've talked about Antiochus and what he's doing at the temple. Still talking about the king, but see how it's different. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his father did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers for many, over many, and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack, but the king of the north shall crush him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. 
He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, in that long stretch, the first part could apply to Antiochus. It's basically someone who's just making himself to be the most important person in the world, making himself to be God. But the problem is, is that from 40 on, and I think, I think 36 through 40, 39 is part of it. From 40 on, it just doesn't happen in history. If you look at history, it's, it's, you can follow it lockstep up into that point, and then it stops, and it doesn't happen. So, did Daniel get it wrong? Or maybe what it is, is that Antiochus, this king who sets himself up to destroy God and his people, is really just a hint of, of what is going to come at the end, as Daniel says in verse 40, at the times of the end. Chapter 12, we'll see points to what seems to be that final persecution. And what I think we see here, it's the best understanding, is a telescoping in prophecy, where you start looking at one thing nearer, and then, with almost without warning, it jumps to the something at the end because it's connected. That's what you see what Jesus does when he's talking about his final discourses in Mark 13 or Matthew 24, where he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. But then he goes from the persecution of the saints in Jerusalem all of a sudden to the end times. I believe that's what Daniel is talking here. We made it. We're going to take a side deep breath. So why do we go through all of that besides the fact that it's God's word? Well, I want you to see that God is in control of all times and all these evil events. And in fact, God not only knows about these events, he actually allows for them to happen. Uh, Antiochus is the shadow of what will happen at the end and will happen again and again in history. And I do want you to read a little bit of the persecution of that he brought on the Jewish people. This is from Josephus, perhaps a little bit of a biased source, but I think he, he probably got mostly right. Listen, listen to this evil that God foretells and even allows. Antiochus got possession of the city by treachery, on which time he spared not so much as those he admitted into it. In order to plunder its wealth, he ventured to break the league which he had made. He also compelled them to forsake the worship which they paid their own God and to adore those whom he took to be gods and made them build temples and raise altars in every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. He also appointed overseers who should compel them to do what he commanded. But the best men and those of the noblest souls did not regard him, and, but did pay a greater respect to the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened to the disobedient, on which account they every day underwent great miseries and bitter torments, for they were whipped with rods 
and their bodies were torn to pieces and were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. They also strangled those women and women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed, hanging their sons about their necks as they were upon their crosses. And if there was any sacred book that of the law found, it was destroyed. And those with whom they found miserably perished also. That's heavy history. You will not find that quote in a Joel Osteen book, will you? Because God wants your best life now, right? Well, God directs the events of his people so that they will experience those persecutions and sufferings. These were the people of God. They were the Jewish people, but they were following God's law before Christ. These were the faithful. Now, he's not responsible for creating the evil that Antiochus did, but he allowed it. Right? He, he, he ordained it. And there's that mystery that goes back to the garden. Why does God allow evil? Um, we know a few things. We, we know that his glory is revealed as he works out salvation. Um, we know that the, the wise saints in, chapter, in verse 33 stand out. We'll say, we know that the saints will be said to shine like stars in chapter 12. We know that God will take on flesh and defeat evil himself at the cost of his own suffering. But we don't know all the answers. But you know, if, if God wasn't in control, and you know, the God of open theism where God is just learning and, and, and God doesn't have all control, um, that's even less of a comfort, right? What, what kind of comfort would it be in this time if, if God wasn't in control when evil happened? And he would be weak to, too weak to do anything to help. Why even pray to him? No, we know that whatever God allows his people to go through, he is in control. And here's, I think, the punchline of chapter 11. He is so in control of history that he can call his shots through his prophets centuries beforehand like he was writing a history textbook. That is how firmly God is in control of time. And unlike the rest of the world, we have a rock to stand on in time of persecution. This is the great encouragement to our brothers and sisters in China and other parts of the world. And whatever you may experience here, too, when it feels like someone is using you for a tug of war and you're the rope, right? Or when disease is ravaging your body or you experience the crushing disappointments of the fallenness of this world. The response to suffering is a, is a normal biblical response but it's confident. The future, in some sense, is certain because God is in control of all things. And so, like Daniel, we can say why, we can say how long, but not as a complaint, but as confident certainty in the future. We'll give the last words to the Apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, amen, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or any of the things that Josephus mentioned as the Jews were persecuted for following God's law. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pray with me, please. 
Father, it's humbling to stop and think that we're here tonight because that's your plan for us. You have ordained that we will be right here in our seats. Let us stop and hold and grasp onto that comfort in our difficult times, and our trying times. And we pray that comfort for our brothers and sisters who face trials for Christ around the world. Give us an increased practically oriented confidence in your sovereignty as we see your control of history in Daniel 11. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will finish by singing a song we have sung from time to time, 72, Amid the Fears That Oppress Our Day. Please stand as we sing.